Gather round and join KPA for this week's safety meeting, the podcast that makes you smarter about current trends and best practices in workforce safety. We're back again with KPA's EHS Regulatory Compliance Manager, Zach Pacillo, for the conclusion of our two-part episode covering mid-year updates from OSHA and the EPA. In part one, Zach took us through rules and regulations from OSHA, and today we're looking at the latest from the EPA. Okay, Zach, we've covered the news from OSHA. Now let's move on to the EPA. Are there notable updates to keep an eye out for? Yes, there's actually probably more flurry of activity going on with the EPA. They're going to move a little bit faster than the Occupational Safety and Health Administration is going to move. So the one that's been making a lot of the news headlines recently would be chemicals known as PFAS or PFOAs. So PFAS stands for polyfluorinated alkyl substances. PFOAs are perfluoral octanoic acid. So PFAS and PFOAs. Where are they found at? They're non-stick type of coatings. Are these sometimes called forever chemicals? Yes, forever chemicals. Yeah, that's what they are called because they are very difficult to get rid of and they are just out there and they are not going to go away. So yeah, PFAS, PFOAs, both of them forever chemicals. It's kind of how the news is relating to them. But yeah, they're found in non-stick cookwares, cosmetics, waxes, waterproofing materials, and probably the little bit more shocking one would be like your food wrappers and packaging. If you think about it, you get like a piece of candy out like a sucker. You don't want the wrapper sticking to that. So they use this type of like PFAS substances on the wrappers to make sure it doesn't like stick to that. Some of that fast food wrappers from back in the day as well, too. We've seen a lot of industries that have switched over to cardboard for like getting a burger or something like that. That's because they didn't want the wrappers they were using, they used PFAS in them to not get them to stick to the food. Well, PFAS, we're learning more and more about them. We don't know everything about PFAS yet, but the EPA is studying them and attempting to get in control of them. They are bioaccumulating out in the environment. It means they get into the system of something and something else eats that and then something else eats that item. And so that's where bioaccumulation comes from. For instance, you know, if it gets into the water and it gets maybe into some plankton, a fish eats the plankton, the fish gets caught, gets eaten by a human. At that point, we bioaccumulated all those PFAS that were in those different entities. So PFAS are found in air, water, animals, and humans. So we don't know officially if they're a carcinogen. We, When I say we, the EPA <laughs> is studying them more to see what the actual human health effects of PFAS are. But the outcome is probably not going to be very good. <laughs> and the reason it's making the news a lot is large companies are being sued by city water supplies for contamination of drinking water. And so the current White House administration is really coming down on the EPA to get in control of PFAS, set regulatory limits on them. One of the issues a couple of years ago was that, yes, they came out with regulation on how much could be like found in drinking water, but they didn't have a test to show like that would go down to that trace amount actually. So we couldn't even test to make sure that companies were meeting the regulatory limit. So large companies, uh, it's public information. 3M had a $10 billion settlement a couple weeks ago with a town down south for contamination of drinking water over the past, you know, 10, 20 years. 
And this is really before we knew that these potentially could be dangerous. Wow. That's a really big headline. Yeah. <laughs> $10 billion gets your attention. <laughs> Absolutely. So what does this look like since obviously there's still a lot of research that's going into this? Yeah. So the administration has asked the EPA to pretty much get in control of the substances. The EPA has to set those regulatory limits and has to come up with testing that we can determine how many PFAS are actually being produced into certain chemicals. Really, the thing is to try to eliminate that substance. There are safer forms of PFAS out there. And so now the goal is to try to make sure that those are being used instead of the ones that are linked to more of the dangerous health effects. So for companies out there, what should they be doing or looking at now that they know that this is in the pipeline? Probably taking a look at their manufacturing of what they're actually producing or what chemicals are one going into it, what's being produced, and then if there is a waste that is generated, what's in that waste. So really making accurate waste determinations to make sure that if you are discharging into the water streams, what's in that water, because that's where a lot of the different legal issues are coming in for these companies is that they've had water that they may have had a national pollutant discharge elimination system permit for. But now the testing has found that, oh, there were an amount of PFAS in there that is over this regulatory limit that the EPA has set forth. So really having that analyzed for PFAS, anything that you produce, having it tested or analyzed for PFAS, and there's lots of different versions of them that are out there, and seeing what's in there, and then taking a look at what the EPA is actually putting out there for the regulatory limits on them and making sure that you're below them. All right. Good to keep an eye on. Another item is the control of hazardous airborne pollutants. So hazardous airborne pollutants pretty much is what it sounds like. <laughs> Something that's emitted out into the environment via the air. We're talking could be a metal, a toxic metal, volatile organic compounds that are released into the air and trying to really restrict those as much as possible. So there is the National Emissions Source Hazardous Air Pollutants Standards. I refer to them as NESHAP. And they pretty much affect all different industries that are going to emit something into the air. And there are different sections under NESHAP for each industry. And so you have to make sure if you're in an industry that emits something into the air, you're going into the NESHAP standards and understanding, okay, what do we need to do according to the EPA? They've just revised a lot of these rules because they weren't able to really track very much so if you were emitting something in the past under the original rules, which usually came out around 2010, 2011, you had to send off notifications to the EPA, and it was a hard copy form. And unfortunately, the EPA probably isn't the greatest at tracking forms for the hundred thousands of companies that are out there. So they have come up with a, an electronic database. And so it's the Central Data Exchange. And in there, there is what they call the Sedri system. And it's a database where you're going to basically put your emission standards in there and any notification form to the EPA. So you might be just a, a car dealership collision center and you have a paint booth where you're going to probably be emitting potentially toxic substances into the environment. Therefore, the EPA wants to know about that and they want to make sure that you are in control of your hazardous airborne pollutants. And therefore, you have to go into the database and let them know that you are emitting to the environment. And so here's my company's information. And it goes into the electronic database at that point. 
Now also, the better route you can take is just taking a look at what you're emitting to the environment and making sure that none of the items that you use in your operation are on that list of hazardous airborne pollutants. And if you can do that, you can be exempt from the whole rulings of NESHAP. And at that point, you can apply for a petition of exemption. And also one of the rule changes is you can just submit a notification that you are exempt from it and just maintain your exemption that way if you're ever audited, which is a possibility. You just go through and show that, hey, according to our suppliers and their safety data sheets, we don't use any hazardous airborne pollutants in our operation. Therefore, we can't emit any. All right. Makes sense. Uh, I've got two more. <laughs> One is the ban on methylene chloride. So methylene chloride is a chemical that is used commercially uh, for like stripping paint off of a substance. Also, there's perchloroethylene, which is a part of this ban as well, too, and that's a chemical that's been used in dry cleaning. So the April, the EPA proposed a ban, um, really the commercial use of both substances in many different types of industries. So why ban methylene chloride? Well, the science behind it is that it's a very unsafe chemical. It can lead to severe health impacts and you know, it can even lead to death for employees that are exposed to it. And it's a chronic exposure. We're talking over long periods of time. So if you have a company that is stripping paint off of something and they continually spray it with methylene chloride because it'll make the paint bubble up and then you can usually just scrape the paint right off. Well, that whole methylene chloride that you're breathing in is going to be very hazardous to your health. It has a lot of different neuro impacts to the person that's inhaling it at that point. So really anybody using that should be using a respirator at all times. And so really the EPA is like, let's just get this out of production as much as possible. I mean, since 1980, about 85 people have died from exposures to methylene chloride. So largely it's used in like home renovation, contracting work, and then even, you know, fully trained people equipped with personal protective equipment have had serious health impacts from it. So banning it, I think, is the right approach to take. And a lot of companies have jumped on board with this. For instance, there's a lot of different like brake cleaners out there. When I say brake cleaner, it's a solvent that like the automotive industry uses to like clean up the brake rotors on vehicles when they're in for repair. And methylene chloride was used in the past because it did a really good job of cleaning off those rotors. Well, now a lot of industries have understood that that's very hazardous for the technicians to be using that. So let's switch over to a non-chlorinated brake cleaner which is usually a flammable, it's a solvent that's used. It's not the safest, but it is safer than using methylene chloride. So it's a substitution. And so companies are getting on board and trying to eliminate methylene chloride out there across the industries. But now regulation is gonna probably require that. That sounds like a positive change. It is. And then one other positive change is the control of HFCs and greenhouse gases. So in 2010, the United States came out with the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act, otherwise known as the AIM Act. And its goal is to try to control the amount of hydrofluorocarbons used and released in manufacturing. Hydrofluorocarbons help create additional greenhouse gases, which are trapped in the ozone layer and help the global warming of the planet. And that's what we want to try to reduce, as we talked about in the heat illness. So trying to get a control of hydrofluorocarbons is the whole point of the AIM Act. 
And so it's basically trying to use different technologies, looking at different chemicals out there to be used to swap out and substitute for these high hydrofluorocarbon use chemicals. Where hydrofluorocarbon is mostly used? Refrigeration. So we're talking your air conditioning, refrigerators, any type of cooling element that could be out there. So we've seen some switches in the past, like in different Freons that are out there. There used to be a Freon called R12. That's pretty much been eliminated at this point. There was a Freon called R134A. That's being phased out at this point. And now we're on to, I believe it's called a YF1234, which is more of a propane-based type of Freon, which eliminates a lot of the hydrofluorocarbons it was using. So the whole point of this AIM Act is to try to reduce global warming potentials by 80% by 2047. So that's why we're seeing the changes in refrigeration. We're also probably going to start putting some regulations around like containers of Freon, meaning if you need to like charge something with new Freon, well, if you want a container of that, you've got to give me the old container or some kind of old container. It's like a container swap program. And the goal of that is to try to make sure that if, you know people are charging a substance that needs Freon. They're not just you know loosening the cap and then tossing it out in the backyard and all of a sudden it's just going into the environment the rest of the way. So they're trying to get a control on these containers that are out there. Another great regulation in my opinion. Absolutely. So does that cover all of the things that are top of mind for the EPA at the moment? It does. Yeah. There's always going to be continual efforts on the state side as well, too. And so making sure that keeping up with your own state changes that are out there, it could be something to do with water, it could be something to do with hazardous waste, but the air is probably where we're seeing most of the changes out there. All right, Zach, we've talked about a lot of different regulations that are in the works. Before we go, you always have such great stories. I want to see if you have any anecdotes or notes to leave us with. <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. And thinking about it, in what we've talked about with air emissions, a lot of the different regulatory items to help protect the environment, as well, too, with the heat illness that's going on. At the time of recording, speaking with you, we just came off of Independence Day in the United States. and. On Independence Day, the 4th of July, I was thinking about something, and it just kind of like came to me about the environment. So you're going to have to stay with me on this one. So this isn't really like field-related. It's just something I was thinking about. But I enjoy watching movies. And one of the movies several people, including myself, watch around the 4th of July is the movie called Independence Day. <laughs> so it's a movie about an alien invasion, and human race fights for its existence. So, like I said, stay with me here. <laughs> Many movies about like extraterrestrial invasions, they explain that the invasion is due to the alien race using up the resources of their own planet. And so they seek out a new one to inhabit. And just looking at that got me thinking about our own planet. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, like with all that I just said, and thankfully their government, as you can see with the regulations, they're starting to think about this. But if we don't take like climate change, along with the pollution issues going on, seriously, we're going to be in a similar situation as the extraterrestrials and need a new home to inhabit. We're talking years away, but we've got to kind of turn that thought process around and really take care of what we have here. 
you know, is the human race going to go find another planet? No, not anytime soon. Obviously, no resources to do that, but we've got to take care of this one and, I guess, cool it down in terms of global warming. Unfortunately, it seems like sometimes the planet's ecosystem is being driven by like economic factors. And so when it comes to corporate industries, they're trying to do all that they can to produce more, you know, the bottom line, do whatever we can to, you know, it's going to be more of a burden to follow government regulations. So let's fight it. Sometimes we've all got to understand we've got to do our part to eliminate the carbon footprint we leave behind. So I'll say this, those of you who may be listening to this podcast and you're in an established industry and company, take a look at that E in your ESG plan, which is your environmental government. Are you doing everything you can to eliminate the strain your company puts on the environment? And if not, see what you can do. You know, it's going to take a lot of different persuasion to the top decision makers of the company, but with enough evidence that you can back it up, which I think we're starting to get more and more of these days, we can make those changes. And with ESG being such a hot topic right now for investors and senior management teams, that's the backing that you need. We can tout this and then we're going to look a lot more healthier, a lot better to potential investors down the road. Absolutely. And I think that's a really great note to end on. Shifting from thinking about this as a bunch of rules and regulations that you have to follow and instead seeing it as an opportunity to invest in the success of the future. Yeah. And these companies, they don't have to do it on their own. I come across a lot of different companies where somebody has been thrown into, hey, you're on charge of payroll, but I need you to figure out our safety program <laughs> or your HR, but you're now our environmental person as well, too. Can you like put our ESG plan together? Wow. <laughs> these people need help. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. And that's where like a company like KPA comes in and KPA, we have the resources to help try to put some of those action plans together that can be touted out there. And it's not just something that you can tout, but it's something that you can actually see the results of in establishing a safer work environment and a more environmentally friendly one as well. So really a partner in helping companies be prepared rather than feeling like they're looking at just a long list of regulations. <laughs> yeah, trust me, you don't want to look at just a list of regulations. They'll take you here, they'll take you there, and then you have no idea what you specifically need to do. Whereas KPA, we have a consultant staff that comes in and we say, okay, I've looked at all those regulations. Guess what? Here's specifically what you need to do. And then it comes into that task list. And we all like task lists because, hey, it's a list we can get done. Absolutely. All for practical solutions. Yeah. Well, Zach, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you joining us again today. Thank you very much for having me. As always, it's a pleasure. This has been the second of a two-part episode with KPA's EHS Regulatory Compliance Manager, Zach Pacillo. Be sure to check out part one, where Zach shares the recent updates from OSHA. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of The Safety Meeting, KPA's podcast that makes you smarter about current trends and best practices in workforce safety. If you like what you're hearing, please consider following the show and leaving us a rating or review. It helps other listeners like you find us. Stay safe out there. <laughs>